All right, it's my great joy to welcome you to City Reach LA today. My name is Josh Houston. I'm the lead pastor here. I would like to remind you once again today is our last gathering here at McKinley for the summer. Um, they're doing renovations. We're not even sure really what that means. We may walk walk in here in a couple months from now and there's like a light bulb changed or something. I have no clue. So they just told us there's renovations happening on the campus. You can't be here. So just to remind you guys and anybody on Facebook Live that's watching right now, um, we're going to be over at, at Roosevelt Elementary off Lincoln, Montana, not far from here. That's starting next week. So don't show up here because nobody else is going to be here. Um, I hope you'll join us next week over there, enjoying the change in scenery a little bit. Um, actually, the room is pretty cool. Um, I checked it out already. It's a, it's a good looking room. For today, I hope you came ready to receive from God. And as a way of, of readying our hearts um, for, for maybe the work that God wants to do in each of us individually, I want to invite you to join me in just taking a deep breath and slowing your mind, opening your palms, and, and just praying this prayer, whether in, in your heart or out loud. Jesus, whatever you have for me today, I receive it. It's Jesus, whatever you have for me today, for us today, we receive it in your name. Amen. If you live in LA, it would be quite challenging to miss how obsessed our city is with story. Movies, TV shows, gaming, podcasts, books, audiobooks, you name it. Angelinos love story, right? We thrive off of it. We sniff lines of it off of the coffee table at two in the morning. Like we we love story. It seeps from our pores. It just like it connects with us deep in our bones. And I don't, I don't, maybe you've noticed over the last five to 10-ish years that the conversation surrounding storytelling um, has, has spiked in pop culture. I don't know if you've noticed. Storytelling degrees in major universities, in-depth studies regarding storytelling, what it does to our emotions, what it does to our brains, TED Talks, new books being written, podcasts and documentaries. There's this, this surge of dialogue revolving around the importance of st storytelling and how it impacts our culture and how, how it impacts our relationships, how we connect with the, the power of story. But for Angelinos, storytelling is not new. I've heard it said that LA is the storytelling capital of the world. It's at least one of the epicenters where, where like, I mean, just walk into any random coffee shop, right? And look, look at a couple computers. You just ask. I love doing that, actually. Like, if I'm in a coffee shop prepping for a sermon or something, and I just, like, meet a stranger and ask what they're working on. It's like it's a TV show. It's a new book. It's new something. We love to author stories here. We love to draw up new narratives that get cast in every direction on the planet. Los Angeles has been telling stories for a long time. Its, it's history is rich in storytelling legacy. But if you zoom out, if you zoom back a little, you know Angelinos didn't author storytelling. Other tribes, other cultures have existed by storytelling for generations and generations and generations and generations. The truth is, people are not just beginning to enjoy story. We're, we're simply tapping into the depths of its impact on humanity once again. We're just coming back around to it again. Think about it. Aesop's Fables. Shakespeare. Nursery rhymes, Greek mythology and the epics, Marvel and DC, Disney and DreamWorks. You see, you see being enamored by storytelling is not even a, a, a cultural phenomenon unique to, to a specific group of people. It's a human phenomenon. It's, it's unique to the human experience. Good stories have this way of moving the human soul. A well-crafted story has the ability to draw you in. It has the ability to overwhelm your senses. It's powerful. 
Storytelling is powerful because it takes us on this journey. And in my experience, excellent storytelling, it causes you to, to momentarily forget yourself. You know what I'm talking about? Where you get lost in the narrative, you, you get transported to this different place, to a diverse perspective, and you experience the world through somebody else's eyes. I love it when I'm watching a good film and I forget that I'm watching a good film. I'm just there. I'm just totally there. And if you take it a step further, I think the greatest stories, they, they compel you to action. You realize that as you're listening or as you're watching, the story is not actually about some made-up character. It's actually about me. That, that I'm the one they're talking about. It's, it, that it's compelling, and it, and it influences you to change or to grow. That, that it convinces you that you can be better, that you can become more. That it will cost you something, but that the cost will be worth it. So your heart is moved to action. And I find it fascinating that people, that people have intuited for thousands of years that stories are more impactful than facts are. You guys notice that? You know what I'm talking about? Facts are valuable, but stories lodge ideas in our hearts. They lodge ideas in our minds in ways that facts can't. They help change our attitudes, our behaviors, our values, ways that, that mere information can't touch us. And it's probably because the brain has such a, uh, an incredible capacity to lose focus. I mean, maybe even during this introduction, you've already probably thought about what you want to eat for lunch or the movie you're going to watch later tonight or how you don't want to go into work tomorrow. I read that the brain engages in up to 2,000 daydreams a day. That it spends up to half its time, its waking hours, wandering. That's incredible. And you see, great communicators, they realize this. They know that people's minds are going to wander, so here's what they do. Great communicators just decide to lead the other on a journey since they're going to be going on one anyway. That's what great communicators do. And this is what Jesus did. He knew what people were like. And, and this was such a story-driven culture. It was such an audible, verbal, driven culture. It was story-driven culture. And this is what Jesus does time and time again. He tells stories. So today, we are starting a two-month series, sermon series, called Jesus the Storyteller. I'm excited about this. It's going to be fun. For the next two months, I want to talk about the power of story and how Jesus used story to form people at the heart level. Specifically, we're going to be diving into his parables. And before I jump into one of his parables today, I want to spend just a moment explaining parables. Because in my experience, most Christians have some real misconceptions about what Jesus was up to at large with parables. When I was a kid, I went to a private Christian school. I went to Baptist Christian School in Hemet, California. Anybody know where Hemet's at? If you do, I'm sorry. I, uh, I grew up actually in, in San Jacinto, which is like in the same valley as Hemet. Um, Hemet and San Jack, I kind of grew up in both of those towns. And people will be like, where are you from? I'm like, San Jacinto. They're like, where's that? I'm like, Hemet. And they're like, oh, my grandma lives there. That's kinda, it's one of those, those places people go to. to I, I don't want to say it. If anybody from Hemet is watching, I apologize. <laughs> uh, so I grew up at, at this. I, I went to school from kindergarten through fifth grade at Baptist Christian School. And uh, I actually, I didn't enjoy my experience when I was there, but I'm glad I went there, if you, if you know what I mean. Um, and in and, and each class, we, were, we, were, we had to study, we learned, we were tested on Bible. It was one of our, one of our like, the, what's the word I'm looking for? Subjects. Yeah, the core subjects that we went through. And I can, I, I can still hear my second grade class repeating, like, together, audibly, the definition of a parable 
as taught by my second grade teacher. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. I could hear all these little kids, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Like we all said it together. And, and that's basically how I've heard it taught my entire life, that Jesus wants people to know about God, that Jesus wants to know about the kingdom of God. But these ideas are so complex for people to grasp. So what's his solution? He tells stories. He uses metaphors to make people understand, help them understand these unfathomable concepts. But it's not entirely accurate. You see, Jesus' parables weren't analogies. They weren't illustrations. What they are is they're riddles. They're puzzles. They're like this doorway that offers new life in a new dimension. Parables, if you're reading them in context, you realize they were meant to divide people. They're meant to divide those who want to learn more, those who want to go deeper, that are, that are honestly and authentically searching for truth and meaning and real life. He wanted to divide those from those who want to see a cool miracle or just want Jesus to make their life a little bit better. These, li- these riddles, what they do is they, they draw a line in the sand for those listening. So I, I think of the movie Hook. You guys remember that? There's that scene with Rufio and, and Peter Pan, right? And, and Rufio gets that, Rufio, 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 and he gets that gold sword, and he draws the line in the sand, and he's like, pick your side, right? It's the, the little fat kid's like, oh, there you are, Peter, right? I love that, right? Actually sounded pretty good. <laughs> but it's like, choose your side, right? And this is what Jesus does with parables. He takes that gold sword, and he draws a line in the sand, and he says, choose your side. If you want to know more, if you want to pursue truth, real truth, let's take a walk. If you want to go deeper, I will take you deeper than you ever knew possible. And if you're satisfied with my heavenly comparison that probably confused you, have a nice day. Parables, they're odd. They're, they're puzzling. They're mystery stories aimed at, at instigating the crowd. And that's what you're going to see over the next two months. Some of these, these parables that Jesus told, they appear nice on the surface. They sound cute from an American culture perspective, but in the ears of these first century Jewish listeners, Jesus often evokes frustration or confusion, anger even. And I'd like to start this week with a story Jesus told about a wandering sheep. If you brought your Bible, your Bible app on your smartphone, I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Luke is the third book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, kind of the back third-ish of the book. Bible's on the tables. If you don't have a Bible with you, I like holding a Bible. just feels good. I'm traditional in that sense. But I'll have the text up on the screen as well. So this is Luke 15, starting in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Anybody heard this one before? Pretty familiar story Jesus told. Again, this is a parable. It's designed to frustrate. It's designed to confound, to instigate 
in order to 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 find those ones that are resolved to find in truth. It's it's poking at people. So what's going on here in context? Let's pull on this thread a little bit. Jesus is surrounded by tax collectors and sinners. By the way, this is, this is one of my favorite qualities about Jesus. He walks into town, and all the worst sinners want to hang out with him. He walks into town, and everybody who's been told they're out, everyone who's been told they don't make the cut, they get a front row show to the seat. I love it. This is the, like Jesus just attracts. He draws in these people. In contrast, we read about these Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and they're complaining. They're saying, look at this rabbi. He hangs out with, he even eats with, meaning he's doing intimate life with these dirty offenders of our religious law. Who are these men, these Pharisees, these teachers of the law? They're, they're the religious leaders. They're, they're the spiritual elites. And in Jesus' day, these men divided humanity. They divided people into two classes, the righteous and the unclean. You see, Pharisee literally means separate ones. They, they purposed their professional careers They devoted their entire lives to pursue holiness. And the reason they did this was because they believed if we become holy, if we are a holy people, the Messiah will come. People, if we will just live holy enough, if we will just live righteous enough, the the Savior will come and he will redeem us. Ironically, he actually shows up and they murder him. These are the people that murdered him. They live their lives as much as possible in complete separation from the unclean. Some rabbis even took this so seriously that they refused to even teach the unclean. This is who these people are. These men, they're critiquing Jesus. Why? Because he befriends ragamuffins. He shares life with the unclean, and it pisses these religious leaders off. You know, you think about this. There have always been, and I believe there's likely always going to be, people overly concerned with with religious ceremonies and rituals and rules for the purpose of deciding who's in and who's out. For For the purpose of drawing lines between who gets let in and who gets let out because it makes them feel powerful. It makes them feel secure. But Jesus takes real issue with this. Even more so with people who do that in the name of God. So the Gospels show Jesus instigating conversation with these men. If you keep reading through Luke 15, like, so we read the first seven verses of Luke 15. If you keep reading through the end of the chapter, you see that this chapter has three parables that Jesus throws at these religious leaders. A lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And the common theme in all three of these is God's love for the lost and how ridiculously he celebrates them. Because in the, in the opinion of these religious elites, Those people that Jesus likes to hang out with, those people that Jesus honors, these undesirables, they have little value in God's sight. So Jesus, what he does is he throws some parables at these Pharisees, at these teachers, to show God's attitude, to show God's disposition towards the ones that they said didn't make the cut. Jesus says, Pharisees, teachers of the law, you think you know who deserves to be let in? You think you know who gets to be pushed out? I got a story for you. Suppose you're a shepherd. You have 100 sheep. One of them finds his way wandering away from from the flock. And and when you count your sheep at the end of the day, you realize one of them's missing. So you go look for him. And we read this and think, yeah, that sounds nice, right? Like, what's the problem? What's so instigating about that? Let's start with what's normal. It isn't strange to have a flock of 100 sheep. 
It's a kind of an average sized flock in this day. It isn't strange for a sheep to wander off. It's not strange for a shepherd to go look for the sheep who wandered off. It's not even strange to leave the 99 to go chase the one because shepherds often travel together. You could leave your, your sheep with, with in, the, in the coverage, in the, in, in the help of the security of another shepherd. All this is, is basically a common experience for a, a Palestinian shepherd in this time. It's a common experience. What's strange, what's ludicrous, is that he's using shepherds as an allegory for these men. This is the offensive element. This is the line in the sand. Jesus says, religious elites, suppose you're a shepherd. They would never suppose they're a shepherd. Why? Again, Pharisees lived their lives as much as possible in complete separation from the unclean. Shepherds were considered an unclean member of, of an unclean profession. Like these people were the bottom of the social scale. It was a job that was envied by no one. And it wasn't just the job. They had this particular reputation, kind of like tax collectors have a reputation in Scripture. It was this unique negative appeal. It was dirty. These scoundrels, these liars, their word couldn't even be trusted in court. So you skim across the surface and we read this and think, yeah, Pharisees, suppose you're a shepherd. But Pharisees would have never identified with the protagonist of this story. They're not relating. My guess is, in fact, if the tax collectors and the sinners that are, like, hanging out with Jesus, they hear Jesus telling this story to the Pharisees, they're probably sneering under their breath. They're probably like, dang, he got them good. I was in, um, I remember in, in, in Bible school, I had a New Testament professor who was walking us through this story. This is what he said. He's like, you want to know what this would have sounded like to these Pharisees? Imagine a Baptist pastor's convention. Somebody walks up on stage to preach, and he says to all these Baptist pastors, Hey, men, suppose you're a pimp, and you have a hundred hoes. And imagine one of these hoes wanders off. Wouldn't you leave your 99 hoes to go find the one that wandered away? Like, this is offensive. This is how these men hear this. They're like, I can't even believe you're saying this to us right now. I mean, this cut, this was distasteful. What's Jesus doing? He's drawing that line in the sand. Choose your side, religious leaders. Do you know what I'm really talking about, or do you just want to get offended? Back to the story, the sheep. It wanders. I've read that no creature more easily strays than a sheep. None is more oblivious None so incapable of finding its way back once it's gone astray. Um, it, will, it will bleat for its flock. It will bleat for the shepherd as it's walking in the wrong direction. In short, sheep are stupid animals. They're completely incapable of saving themselves. So what does the shepherd do? Yeah, and it's funny that Jesus says, you guys are my sheep, right? <laughs> We're like, thanks, Jesus. <laughs> so what does the shepherd do? He leaves his flock and he goes and he finds the one. Because if it's not found, the sheep is either going to starve to death or it's going to get eaten by a predator. And the shepherd will not allow this to happen. Here's another big one. Jesus is pushing back against some, some major religious norms and beliefs of these people. In this story, the shepherd is representing God. But according to popular, popular belief, this is never how God would act. This is not how God treats humanity. Many rabbis believed that God receives the sinner, 
only if, if, if they come to God properly. But in this parable, Jesus teaches that God actively seeks out the lost. He doesn't just like resentfully receive them when they come crawling back. The God that Jesus describes searches for the wandering ones. This is an absolutely new concept that, de- that Jesus is teaching men about God. The truth that, they are, that they're supposed to walk away with here. This is what Jesus is coming. God finds the sinner more than the sinner finds God. I want, you to, I want that to, like, to lodge. Because, I mean, that, for us, that probably doesn't sound too profound. But for this day, for these guys, they could not believe this. God finds the sinner more than the sinner finds God. That each person is more lost than they realize, but that God is, is pursuing them more than they realize. He's actively searching for each lost sheep. And when he finds them, he puts them one at a time on his shoulders and walks them back joyfully. He walks them home. God does the work of bringing it back, not just saying, hey, that's the right direction. Go walk that way. And then, wanting, wanting others, his friends, to share in his joy, he invites his friends and his neighbors over to celebrate with him. He throws a party. Rejoicing is the emphasis of this parable. It's not, the, it's not the numbers. We get fixated on the numbers. It's not the numbers. The, the emphasis of this parable is, is the joy of finding one lost sheep. Jesus' critics don't know what to do with this. This is probably hitting them like a brick in the face. They're blinded by their pride. They're, they're ignorant about what causes celebration in heaven. One repentant sinner, it causes more joy than 99 righteous persons who think they don't need to repent. When Jesus says righteous persons, he's, he's aiming that magnifying glass right at the Pharisees. Because the moral of this story is that the shepherd rejoices when he finds the lost sheep and his friends join in the celebration. That's what Jesus is getting after. He, and he's like pouring salt on the wound of these Pharisees right now. Hey, religious elites, the ones that are, uh, allegedly are the closest to God, God's friends, you guys, you're not as close to God as you think. Because God rejoices over these ones that you keep saying are out. And to take it even further, to make it even more outrageous, Jesus says the sheep does nothing to rescue itself. (laughs) Religious leaders, you keep telling people to repent so that God will save them. But here's the truth. God's been saving them long before they started repenting. They don't need to repent in order to be saved. They repent because they're already being saved. At this point, Jesus' disciples got to be like, Jesus, this is the stuff that gets people crucified. Stop saying this. He's drawing the line in the sand. It is God's effort that brings salvation, not humanity's effort. It's God's pursuit of each one that brings redemption, that causes wholeness. Each one matters to God. Even though he sees the how many billions or trillions of people that will ever exist in our time, he has the range to value each one. You ever notice that when you collect something, anybody collect anything, you know, like whether it's vinyl records or rare coins or stamps, movies, shoes, whatever it is, the more you get, the more challenging it is to value one. You ever notice that? I, I, I've experienced that personally. When there are larger numbers, the value and the significance of one begins to kind of blend into the whole. I don't know if you've ever seen Schindler's List. It's a beautiful film. 
about the 1,200 Jews that Oskar Schindler saved during the Holocaust. And one of the glaring moments of the film is the girl in the red coat. Um, she's one of four images in the three-hour black and white film where color shows up. You're just like watching this, and then like out of nowhere, this girl in this red coat kind of walks into the scene. And as you're watching, your eyes are drawn to this little innocent girl who wander, who's like wandering amongst the horror and the panic of this crazy scene. Even in a wide shot, your eyes are drawn to watch her move through the crowd. And, and in, the, in the film, this is the moment where Oscar Schindler gets it. He, he sees the chaos, but he's gut-wrenched in terror over that one. You see, pain and, and horror, it has to be individualized. It's, it's got to be personalized for us to truly feel compassion. There's this saying often attributed to Joseph Stalin, actually. He says, one death is a tragedy and a million deaths is a statistic. Or Mother Teresa, who said, if I look at the mass, I will not act. But if I look at the one, I will. This scene in the film, it, it causes you to focus in on one life. Spielberg was very intentional about this. He wanted one drop in the ocean of brutality to paint a picture of the horror of the six million Jews that were killed. The girl in the red coat, that one, it makes you put a face on the pain of the whole. And this is what Jesus is doing with the lost sheep. If a thousand sheep are lost, it's hard to identify, it's hard to empathize with the entirety of the pain and the brokenness. So he zooms into one sheep. One sheep wanders. One sheep is in danger of being hurt and broken and lost forever, and God will not have it. So he pursues the one. He grieves over the lostness of one, and he rejoices, and, and he throws a party, invites all his friends over to celebrate the returning of one. Scripture says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. This is Isaiah, actually, way before Jesus. That each of us have drifted. We, we choose our own plans and our desires and our, our gratifications that leads to brokenness over staying close to our shepherd. But Jesus, who comes along later and says, I am the good shepherd. Jesus is on mission to unite us, to bring us home to him. I'm preaching the gospel today. If you haven't got it yet, I'm preaching the gospel today. The good news of Jesus, the Christ, who has saved us, who is redeeming us back to himself. And here's what I hope you walk away with today. That like the sheep, I am more lost than I know, but Jesus is pursuing me more than I know. That I am more lost than I know, but Jesus is pursuing me more than I know. This is the gospel. That I'm deeply loved by Jesus and I've done nothing to earn or deserve it. The gospel starts with the fact that we failed. We've wandered. We've chosen brokenness. We've chosen destruction and ruin as our reality, each one of us. Each of us walk away from God's plans, his purposes, his goodwill for our lives. And it's important that we start here because if we just want to pretend that we're sinners, if we just want to pretend that we're sinners, the best we'll be able to do is pretend that we've been forgiven. It's important that we start with our failure. Because what may be the ultimate fairy tale is that we have the ability to fix ourselves. That we have the ability to redeem our brokenness by our own efforts. Jesus comes along and he, he, he insists on God's initiative that it is by grace that we are saved. 
that the eternal lover has taken to chase each one of us. In my 10 years of pastoring, one of the themes that I continue to, to see Christians grapple with is believing that our spirituality starts with self rather than with God. That, that personal responsibility has replaced personal response. We tend to place emphasis on what we do rather than what, what God is doing. We tend to, blind, to blind this, this, sorry, we tend to dim this blinding intensity. Like the gospel is so blinding when we look at it because it seems too good to be true. So we have to dim it down. But the truth is, you were home before, before you started the journey home. You've been home long before you started walking back. Thomas Merton says that a saint is not someone who is good, but one who experiences the goodness of God. All is grace. All the good that we experience is not ours by right or by entitlement, but by, but by the sheer bounty of a gracious God that God is lavishing himself on us. And this is why Jesus many times refers to children. If you're looking through scripture, you see children come up often. It's because if kids are close to God, it's because they're incompetent. If they receive anything, it can only be a gift. The child doesn't struggle for good standing with God. He doesn't have to explain his position to God. She doesn't have to put on a front or obtain some level of spiritual maturity. All she has to do is happily accept the cookies. That's the gospel. You know, Tolkien once wrote, not all who wander are lost. And I agree. But maybe we could also say that not everyone wandering has been found yet. Whether you've been exposed to the gospel your entire life, or this is the first time you're hearing it, you're invited simply to accept the fact that you are accepted. If that happens, you've experienced grace. And this is actually what it really means to be found. This is what it means to experience eternal life. I think the greatest honor that we can give Jesus is to joyfully receive his love for each one of us. Like, what are we supposed to do? That's it. You receive his love for you. That's our role in this. He's so very personal with each person. You see, if God is this, like, this impersonal cosmic force for you, your religion is going to have to settle for being noncommittal, for being vague, for being colorless and flavorless. So I want to boldly express today that the creator of the universe, that the inventor of your soul whispers in your heart today, you're mine. You're mine and I am yours. I've been, I've been pursuing you since your conception and your only requirement is to accept my extravagant love for you. And maybe this bumps up against your version of God. Maybe it collides with the picture of, of deity as you see it. And please hear me. What I'm not saying here is I've got God figured out. This is, this is actually quite the opposite. What I'm saying is Jesus' parable of the lost sheep and many other teachings that Jesus brings forward as well, what they do is provide a picture of God's ruthless pursuit of each one of us. Because I believe this, that if Jesus showed up in your home tonight, if you're having dinner or you're watching a movie or you're playing on your phone and Jesus shows up with knowledge of everything you are and you are not, with total comprehension of your life story, he sees everything hidden in your closet, all your hidden agendas, your worst decisions, all the desires that are built up in you that you know are so shameful. If he shows up and look you in the eyes, you are going to radically feel his acceptance and his forgiveness for you. Are you really aware 
that you don't have to change, that you don't have to grow, that you don't have to clean yourself up to be loved by God. If you don't hear anything else I say today, please hear this. Repentance is not what we do to receive forgiveness. It's what we do because we've been forgiven. Repentance is not what we do to receive forgiveness. It's what we do because we're forgiven. Repentance is an expression of gratitude. We turn from, it means to turn around. It means to do it the opposite, walk the other way. We turn from our destructive habits, these actions, these thoughts, not to earn acceptance, but because we've already been accepted. This is crucial to the gospel message. The order has to go forgiveness, then repentance. Not repentance, then forgiveness. You don't need more spiritual insight. You don't need more books. You don't need to hear more sermons, more spiritual discipline. The most urgent need in your life today is to trust that you have been loved and accepted as you are and not as you should be because none of us are as we should be. Nothing is demanded of us to make God love us or pursue us. Our work is responsive. To love God in return. And to love what God loves and how God loves. I believe Jesus looks at you today and says, more pleasing to me than all of your prayers and all your good works and all your service is that you would believe that I love you. We all like sheep have gone astray and I am more lost than I know. But Jesus is pursuing me more than I know. That's the gospel. I want to invite the worship team to come back up. This is what we're going to do. We're going to respond to the love of God for us. They're going to play a song, and you guys know. You guys have experienced this every single week, and I, just, I, I hope you can come at this fresh today. Not as a ritual that we do every single week. Not as a constant that you, you can predict what's coming. <laughs> Preach it, Shiloh. <laughs> that God's love would fall on you fresh today. Whether you've been following Jesus your entire life or you've literally never heard the gospel today, our good shepherd, he wants to pick you up and joyfully place you on his shoulders and walk you home. He wants to rescue you from your destructive tendencies, to redeem your heart, to return you to home, to wholeness, to, to shalom. And all he asks is for you to believe that he loves you. So today I want to invite you to receive the love of God. And it's simple, this, it's as simple as this, to pray in your heart, to tell God in your mind, in your heart, whatever, the, like this internal voice, that Jesus, I want to encounter your love today that I want to experience your redemptive work in my life. I receive your love. I receive your acceptance. I want to know you. And his grace will fall on you. His love will encounter you. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Because that transforms everything we do. And if we can't figure this piece out, it really doesn't matter what else we figure out. Because it's not going to be the gospel. God loves you right now in spite of all of it. Just as you are. So Jesus, we approach you once again in view of all of our hurts, our brokenness, all the pain that's been done to us, all the pain that's we've, that we've done to other people, all our failures. Every reason why we feel like we don't make the cut, 
God, you see that. We lay it all before you and we say we accept our acceptance. We, we, we fall into your arms again. Thank you for your love for us. That it's non dependent on how well we perform. Thank you for your furious love for us, God. So I pray that, that, that as we sing this song or as, as our worship team sings this song, Lord, our, our people would encounter your love in this moment. That we, your sheep, would get cast on your shoulders and walked home to shalom, to wholeness, to peace, to joy, to grace. We pray for it the power, for the capacity, for the strength to say yes to your love for us today, God. Help us to receive that love.